welcome to Music and Casts, a podcast series discussing topics in and around the field of music education. Today I have with me Ryan Van Bibber. Ryan teaches music and audio production at the Fort Hayes Metropolitan Education Center in Columbus City Schools and at Columbus State Community College. He previously taught instrumental and general music in grades 3 through 12. Ryan holds a Bachelor of Music Education degree from Ohio University, a Master of Arts in Music Education from The Ohio State University, and a Master Certificate in Music Writing and Production from the Berkeley College of Music Online. Ryan is an AVID Certified Instructor for Pro Tools and a Berkeley Pulse Certified Instructor. He is a member of TIME and the Audio Engineering Society and regularly puts on clinics and workshops in Ohio and around the U.S. on all things music tech-related. Ryan plays the trumpet and also enjoys creating electronic music. He lives in Columbus, Ohio with his piano teacher wife and four musical children. In this episode, Ryan and I will be discussing music tech and audio production and what this field means to the future of the music classroom. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hello, Matt. Thanks for having me. I am really happy to be here and talk about music tech. So, Ryan, when we're talking about music tech or audio production, tell us a little bit about what that is or what that entails. So those are some large terms, and they're sort of ill-defined, and I kind of appreciate that ambiguity. You can sort of make them about whatever you want. So audio production is producing audio, and part of that's music, because music is like a huge part of audio. So audio production could be anything from recording uh, music or interviews or podcasts to editing for music or for uh, post-production like audio for video, audio for film. It can incorporate a lot of different media into that. And then music technology, I feel, is more centered around music. And it is probably a little more native to the K-12 education environment. So music technology incorporates everything from you know production programs like Ableton Live, Pro Tools, Logic, any of those, to teaching music with technology. So if you use a smart board in your general music classroom to play a music game, then you are using music technology. So they're both wide-ranging terms, and uh, they're, you can use them basically however you want. There's no terminology police to come after you. Yet I've noticed with the, especially with the uh, the onset of smartphones and the various apps out there, I feel like this field or this this topic, whatever you want to call it, is, is becoming a, you can this like widespread accessibility for like students of all ages. I mean, they're jumping on their phones, their computers, you know, and they have access to all these audio production type apps. Um, and I feel like it's creating a big scene for this. Oh, it's been a huge paradigm shift. So, you know, I started out my career as a middle school band director. I loved every minute of it. I loved bringing kids together in a room with all different instruments to put on a concert, to have them all focus on one thing. But the paradigm has shifted, I mean, dramatically. And I personally have a theory that it is a direct result of cell phones. If you think about when we were kids, someone called your house or they were, you know, they could be wanting to talk to anybody. There was a central phone in your house. Anybody could answer it. If you wanted to use a phone, you had to go to that location, right? It was like on the wall. You had to dial a house. You couldn't dial a person. There was literally nothing customizable about that phone except maybe the color. And so now we live in this era of hyper customization. Even if you have two people with the same model phone, the phones are totally different. The apps that they have are customized. The appearance is customized. How they use it, how your parents use Facebook, um, is completely different than how you use Facebook, probably. <laughs> right? 
Totally. And, uh, and then younger people don't, you know, they use other social media networks. We're in an era of hyper customization. Um, we're also in an era of relatively cheap tech. Before, if students want to make electronic music, like in the 90s or early 2000s, it was a very expensive endeavor. You had to sink a lot of money into equipment that might not even give you the best results. Now, the technology is so cheap and so readily available. Kids want to make music. I mean, a lot of people want to make music. People just love music. And they will make it with any means necessary. And now we have these incredible tools for music creation. They're cheap and plentiful. And we live in an era of hyper-customization. It's almost like a hard sell to get a bunch of kids focused on one thing, like a band piece or a choir piece or an orchestra piece. For a lot of kids, like the band kids or the choir kids, they love that experience and they're going to go there. But for like the other 80% of the student body at a given school, they may not be into that group thing. So music technology is a great way to expand a school's music offerings to the other 80% of the student population and allow students who don't get into groups to create music in a school setting with training. And I think that's a very important aspect of it. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, you get your band kids, your choir kids, but you got this whole other population of the school who might enjoy music and who might be interested in getting into music. Yeah, but maybe they don't have the time or they feel like they don't have the skill to do practical instruments or to do, you know, what we would call our standard music education programs in the band yeah, choir. Or the kind of music that the school ensembles play does not appeal to them. Right. The instruments involved do not appeal. I mean, I love my trumpet. You know, I will like play the trumpet until I can't anymore. But there are a lot of other kids that don't want to blow into a thing and have it make noise. You know what I mean? Right. They want to be oh, in yeah. headphones. They want to use a MIDI keyboard. They want to use a drum machine. If there's no place for those kids in school, we do them a great disservice. Right. And especially too, and that's this is a whole nother topic, but if you think about the the longevity and the, the the credibility of your music program. If you can show that you're reaching out to a much larger population of the school, that you are offering music to a more general population and to more students, you're giving better credibility to your program. And let's face it, when you're talking about funding and, and cutting programs, if, if you can show that you're servicing a larger portion of the school, you got a much better chance of saving your program. Absolutely. And when you think about the kind of music most people listen to, And this is not like a new thing. I mean, this is like people who are like old now, right? People who uh, grew up with like, let's say the Beatles. I mean, none of that music really was made on traditional orchestral instruments, right? It was mostly made on guitars, drums, keyboards. And so for whatever reason, music education really like missed that whole generation of rock music. It's very rock music programs were like vanishingly small in number. You know, it's like it's like they missed this whole thing. It's like the 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 music ensembles offered by schools of music and by K to twelve schools sort of stopped at the early twentieth century, and, and then that was it. Um, and they didn't evolve from there to include other types. And now, you know, the most popular instrument in the world is probably the guitar, followed by maybe the keyboard, software, the voice, and these are all of the very instruments we tend not to service in schools, not to teach. You can come out like I came out of music education school, both my bachelor's and my master's, never having picked up a guitar. It's weird. Yeah, and it's interesting. And, and some of that stuff I was talking about with a, 
another podcast guest. We're talking about how slow things move from the academic world out into the, we'll call it the K through 12 world. Uh, In that sense, we were talking about music theory, but you're right. I mean, I, I experienced a little bit about that when I was teaching where I had the opportunity to create and do um, a rock music studies class. And it had a performance element to it. We, we let the kids, you know, bring in their guitars, sit down at the drum set. And I was noticing even with that, that that drew a much different body of students than my traditional band kids. You had those kids that they played in their garage band, you know, they played that bass guitar with their friends and they just wanted to, to come in and, and do the music that they liked. You know, not everybody's going to sit down and, and want to play your traditional wind band music. Right. And, uh, and I like, I love Hindemith. Like I'm going to, I'm going to stand Hindemith till I die. Okay. You know, I love Hindemith. I love uh, Granger and like all, you know, all the wind band dudes. Right. I love all that stuff. And, and there, and I, I, I will listen to it occasionally. And I remember, you know, I have great nostalgia for playing it in, in college. But, you know, I teach in a city school. I teach in the largest school district in Ohio, and I teach in one of the largest schools in the district, and we're incredibly diverse. And we are incredibly not Eurocentric. And the Eurocentric tradition in music education is very dominant in academia and in schools across the country. You know, if you want to take your kids to some kind of um, state competition like an OMEA, it's a Eurocentric endeavor. I mean, it just is. I'm not like making a judgment on that. I'm just kind of stating a fact. That's a Eurocentric endeavor. The idea that there is a whole group of people that all sort of bend their will to the central individual, whether that's the conductor or the composer, and they sort of subjugate their wills to the will of the piece, and they sort of forego their creative impulses to really, you know, every clarinet's got to play that staccato note at exactly the same length. That's what makes the music sound good. And I mean, that's the Eurocentric model versus, you know, Afrocentric or other kinds of models of music that maybe put more emphasis on an individual's unique contribution to a whole or their unique voice. You know, think about a pop group versus a choir. In a choir, the goal is for your voices to blend. If your voice is sticking out timbrely, you know, and like not blending, that's like bad. But if you are in a pop group and you have a bland voice that doesn't, it, that doesn't stick out, like no one's going to remember you. Every pop group, you get, I mean, think of like Aerosmith, right? right. Or uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, if we wanted to go old school. Or if you, <laughs> you know, newer people like a Billie Eilish, right? Or Alana Del Rey. Those voices are immediately recognizable. They're not choir, like blend in kind of voices. It's two completely different paradigms of music. And I feel like we need to be able, as music teachers, we have an obligation to recognize and to be able to teach both of them. I think you make a great point that we are definitely missing the boat and ironically have been for almost a century now. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a lot. I mean, it started with, um, obviously, I mean, if you want to get really super deep into it, it started with sort of a racist rejection of jazz in schools. You know, jazz was black music by black composers and black performers. And it was brought forth at a time of just like overt structural racism throughout all segments of our society to the point where people just could not accept that music in academia. And then they they missed the boat on jazz at first. It took like 50 years, right? Now most schools have a jazz program of some kind. Well, I mean, jazz as a popular form of music has been like not dominant 
for like another 50 years. Right. And now we're just getting some schools into the modern band uh, kind of curriculum. It's like a big movement, the modern band. It's like a branded thing. And, uh, and they're introducing rock and roll instruments. And I will frequently talk to music teachers and they're like, oh, the, I bring the Beatles into the class and the kids love the Beatles. And I'm like, the Beatles are great. I love the Beatles but they have not released an album in 50 years. <laughs> oh, right. Five zero. They have not released an album in 50 years. So maybe, maybe it's not the Beatles, right? Maybe it's, I mean, even hip hop at this point, you can major in hip hop at a couple of colleges. And I feel like that's sort of a death knell for hip hop. Once you can major in a kind of music at a college, it's like done. So, um, <laughs> But I mean, hip hop is very vital still and uh, electronic music, produced music. And we have to give kids access and expertise with these modern tools, right? Even if you are going to be like a classical music person now in the 21st century, classical music composers, they don't sit down with like sheet music at the piano by candlelight and like write beautiful melodies. You know, they just don't do that. They use software. They don't even use notation to start off with. Most of them, they go with sonics. They go with sound. If you can play music directly into a digital audio workstation and get it to sound exactly how you want, the notation is sort of an afterthought. The notation is designed so that other people can interpret your works. But really, that's, you know, they, the tool that they use to create is a technological tool. And there are so few places teaching that now. Yeah, okay, if you are in a great double A band in some suburb and you're focused on marching band competitions and then concert band competitions and solo and ensemble, those are all like wonderful endeavors. I took my uh, city band, my city kids, I took them to OMEA. They did very well. You know, I love marching band. But if you're, if you're preparing kids to be band directors and to be choir directors, you're good to go. But if you're preparing them to do like literally anything else in music, you're in trouble because unless you're teaching them how to record, unless you're teaching them what compression is, how to EQ something, unless you're teaching them how to creatively think about sound and, and hear things uh, in unique ways, then uh, you're, you're not really teaching them the full scope of music. Right. And if you think about it, the time that you and I came out of, let's say, our high school or even our, our college Mm-hmm. music settings if, if you go anywhere beyond that where do you leave yourself as a, as a let's say as a musician so I, I went through my high school band program and if i don't go to college and play in college bands i might get lucky and there there might be a community band in my area but that doesn't leave me many other outlets for doing music yeah if you uh, want to do music for a living if you want to like make your living at music you you can't really do it. I mean, it's hard enough to do it with traditional orchestral classical, right? My son, my oldest son, Alex, is 17 right now. He is like a genius pianist. Um, he just Phenomenal. played. Yeah, he, he, he you know, he's played everywhere. He's played all over the country. He played at Carnegie Hall. He's played with orchestras. He, he's won all kinds of competitions. He is a real great pianist. He's going to go to school and and maybe double major in piano and computer science because he recognizes that he will always love playing the piano, but he probably can't make a living at it. I mean, how many pianists, classical pianists, because that's what he is. He's a classical pianist. How many do you need? E- even in a large city, you, you don't need as many as you do recording engineers. I mean, you just need a whole lot of recording engineers for like every kind of medium, right? And he doesn't want to do that kind of thing. But you're right. Like I live here in Columbus and the neighborhood I live in is called Clintonville and there's a Clintonville community band. 
and they're pretty good. I, I like listening to them. They don't get paid or anything, so they can't make a living. It's a strictly hobby kind of thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you, you know, there's no NFL for the for band. You right. know, it's hard enough for the violinist or an oboe. You know, there are so few orchestral vacancies. I don't even know if there's a professional wind band outside the military and maybe Tokyo Kasai or something like that. There's the Sousa band. There's a couple of them, but like you said, yeah. there's not a lot. I mean, there's not a lot of professional wind bands out there. Right. So, yeah. So, there's yeah. So, hopefully this. League. Right. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Minor league. So, let's talk a little bit about this. So, you're whether you're pitching this to your administrators or school board and, and, you're, and you're looking at trying to get into music tech at your schools, and we're talking about what educational aspects can it bring. I know I, I recently read your article featured in the spring 2021 edition of the Triad about some of the fundamentals of music that you teach using popular music um, and some of this technology stuff we're talking about. And I was wondering if we could talk about some of those. Sure, yeah. I was going to say, you know, the, the things you pointed out in the article were form, rhythm, melody and timbre and i was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you present each of those in the in the audio production platform sure so um i like to take a practical approach i have experimented with this for years and you know one of the biggest challenges of the position i'm in is that kids come to me with all different levels of musical training since i teach at a career center and i teach audio production i have kids coming in that have been in you know band choir orchestra classes all the way from the fourth grade up to the 11th grade when they start my program and they play several instruments, some of them. Uh, some of them are like legit professional musicians already. Like they go out and do gigs. Uh, some of the kids have literally never taken a music class. I don't even know how that's possible, but it has happened several times. The most common thing is that a kid has taken like a general music class because they were like required to in middle school, but they've never participated in an ensemble. They've never looked at sheet music. They don't know how to play any instrument. And these are all kids in the same room together. So I'm like, okay, well, how do I teach this, right? So you take a concept like form. Form, you know, if when I was teaching like middle school general music, I was still sort of wrapped up in the music school model of education. And I was trying to teach kids about like Sonata Allegro form and like Rondo yeah. form. And then like eventually I'm like, why the hell am I doing this? There's literally no song on the radio and there's no song they're ever going to make that's in Sonata Allegro form. <laughs> I mean, right. I don't understand why this is still so important. Uh, it's a historical style and it's fantastic, but it's done. OK, breaking out of that, going into pop music, when you really get down and you start analyzing songs you realize there's a huge diversity of musical form out there, right? It's not even just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus. You know what I mean? That's like a standard kind of song form. It is not, by the way, the standard song form we learn in music school. And I remember learning a musical song form is A-A-B-A, -A -A, you know, and that is a song form from like the early 1900s. <laughs> but it's not a song. That's not the way it is anymore. It's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, right? Bridge, chorus, chorus, you know, intro, outro, whatever. But when you really listen to music that's out, that the kids are listening to in their free time, and you bring that into the classroom and you say, let's just analyze this and see what sections there are, then you're not really teaching kids about a specific form. You're teaching them how to detect form with their ears. You are teaching them when to recognize when a song section repeats, when it repeats totally, when it repeats slightly like you know it changes somewhat you get them to realize that there's a thing called like a pre-chorus and its function is to build energy and emotion 
to the release of the chorus. You can get into finer details when you talk about like songwriting. So for instance, one characteristic of songwriting that a lot of people don't think about is verb tense. And one way good songwriters sort of move their songs forward is by using a different verb tense in the first and second verses. Now, you may have never heard of that, but I guarantee now that the next time you listen to a song, you're going to be listening for the verb tenses in the first verse versus the second verse. Or if it's not a verb tense, it's a location. If it's a love song, it's about... Uh, you know, a breakup or something, then the first verse might take place like in the singer's bedroom. And then like the second verse like expands to the neighborhood. Like it's a different setting. And that change is something skilled songwriters put in and you can teach that. And, and that's a, that's an element of musical form, right? Some of the other things I mentioned in the article were like rhythm. So rhythm is a huge thing in Afrocentric music, basically all music at this point, hip hop, rock, jazz, R&B, gospel, soul, funk, anything, even dance music, you know, especially dance music, I should say, because the rhythms they're using to like make you dance, they're syncopated, they're off the beat, they are strong, they're complex. I'm talking about pop music, vocal lines. Like there's a reason why bands like your average pop band or whatever doesn't like write out sheet music. It's too complicated. You are going with speech patterns in like the English language or for example, our speech patterns don't line up well with like Western European rhythm. There definitely have been times where I've heard music teachers question the validity of modern popular music by saying things like, well, it's very dull. It's very repetitive. It's very harmonically simple. Okay, it is harmonic. Like if you want to compare something like, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or something like that to, I don't know, like a Jay-Z song. The harmony of the Jay-Z song is going to be much simpler than all of the chromaticism and the secondary dominance and what have you of the Beethoven. But check out the rhythm. I mean, Beethoven, the ninth, the the big, like famous melody, it's like all quarter notes. Dun, 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 dun. And then the exciting part is the dotted quarter note. You know what I mean? <laughs> really, really like almost insultingly simple. Listen to the Jay-Z. Listen to like any Jay-Z track. My favorite, I think my favorite Jay-Z track is Lucifer. I can't remember that's the name, but that's, that's like the hook. And he uses this great sample. And listen to his vocals. They're, the rhythms are like incredible. It's like listening to a drum line. It's like the, the rhythms are so complex. They're so syncopated. And rhythm is like this overlooked thing. And like when you study music theory in school, in music school, you spend like all of this time on sight singing complex intervals and harmonies and things like that. And you spend like comparatively little time studying rhythm. And I think that's what feeds into this perception that pop music is like simpler than classical music or art music is because the lack of focus on rhythm. If you focus on rhythm, like all of a sudden you're like, oh man, this is actually really tough. Yeah. So you can teach rhythm really well with pop music. I personally, uh, this past year, especially with the pandemic, I completely stopped teaching music on the staff. I had always had an element of my production class where I taught the students like the names of the notes on the treble clef staff, mostly treble clef. And we would look at rhythms, but it's not a really good system for teaching complex rhythms. So I use the MIDI editor exclusively now. The MIDI editor is great because like in Western notation, the more stuff you add to a note, the shorter it gets, which is sort of counterintuitive, right? It starts off with a hole, which is like four beats long. Then you add a, you fill it in, you add something, you fill it in. And now it's worth less time, right? You add a stem and that's a half note. You fill that in. Now it's a quarter note. You add a flag and it's an eighth note, another flag. Oh, it's even shorter. 
keep adding stuff until it's shorter, unless you add a dot. If you add a dot, then it's longer. But if you add the dot underneath it, it's shorter again. You know what I mean? It's like staccato. It like doesn't make any sense visually. Versus in a MIDI editor, like a long note, it's like long, right? And a short note is short. Every It's a grid. So a measure is a measure. It's a, like a bar is a bar. It's going to take up the same amount of space. Versus if you have sheet music, standard sheet music, but it has like a bar of 16th notes and a whole note. Right. And the whole note bar is like half an inch long and the 16th, <laughs> like three inches long, because that's the way it has to be. Right. But the MIDI editor is so much more intuitive, especially for people who don't already read music, which is what I'm mainly dealing with. Yeah. You know, you talk about the complex rhythms and pop music. Anybody that has, let's say, in a band setting that has played arrangements of pop music, you oh. realize how crazy the, some of those vocal lines are. And then, you know, for the skill level of your players, a lot of times you have to dumb down those rhythms and then it doesn't quite sound like the original song. So that's interesting that you brought that up. Yeah. When I was, I would always do pop arrangements, mostly of hip hop. Um, when I was a middle school band director, cause we were like sort of a hip hop centric school where I was teaching. I, I never try. I always wrote them out. Cause like I can do that. Like I, I'm obviously I'm trained. I can write stuff out. I never taught it by counting because the kids knew the songs. So I'd be like, this is the part where it goes, doo, 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 you know what? I would sing it to them and they would get it. And it was, it's just like learning by ear. I mean, it's not the be all end all. It's important for students to know how to read music on band or orchestral instrument, right? It's important. That's important. That's a good skill to have, right. but it is not required to make music. You can definitely make music without knowing how to read. And I almost feel like, you know, the ear is so much more important than the eye in music that if you had to sacrifice something, give the kids the ear. They want to specialize. I gave a talk at OMEA. No, actually, I, I'm sorry. I gave a talk at Ohio State University to some music ed students that came into my classroom. And we were talking about what's universal and what's niche. In, in music education, I feel like a lot of time we have our priorities backwards as to what's universal and what's niche. So like marching band, love marching band. Marching band is a very niche ensemble. It's very like, much so. like you're never going to find a marching band in too many other countries, right? It's like a U.S. thing. I mean, there are some elsewhere, like in Japan, but all of those are a direct result of U.S. influence. You know, so marching bands are great. They're a lot of fun, but they're niche. Like if marching bands went away, music would carry on. The oboe. I love the oboe. The oboe is a very niche instrument. You know what I mean? Like I spent, and I'm sure you did too, because we were in the same program. I spent, I don't know, like six or eight weeks learning to play the oboe to be like a music teacher. And yet I never spent one single minute learning to play the guitar. Which one is more universal, the oboe or the guitar? Right. You know what I mean? Which one, which one do more people make music with? Which one is more germane and important to our culture? No offense to oboe players out there. Um, <laughs> but but you, you know, we have it backwards. Like what's universal, what's niche? So when I am designing a curriculum for my students, so if I were to go back and design, or if I were to go back to traditional teaching, I would do much more than I did before with improvisation, with songwriting, um, with listening and copying music orally. And I would spend less time actually with, with reading activities. I am going to make the very controversial claim that reading music is itself a niche skill. It's not universal. Most genres of music in the world do not require you to read Western notation, rock, rap, hip hop, even music that has notation like gospel music. Gospel music is an orally learned music. You have to be there 
with the ensemble and the director. And you have to be sort of in the culture to really understand and get that music at its heart. You know, versus spending an inordinate amount of time teaching kids and drilling reading into them. I look at that as a specialized skill. So if you, if your goal or your student's goal is to like maybe compose music for film, if they want to write for ensembles, if they want to write just anything that other people are going to need to interpret on a traditional instrument, then they need the skill of reading and writing music. And it's a great skill to have. Like it's done a lot for me. So I like, I promote it, but I think that we should probably focus on the more universal aspects of music more. If all sheet music went away tomorrow, there'd still be plenty of music in the world. Oh yeah. If songwriting went away, it would be devastating. If improvisation went away, it would be devastating. You know what I mean? Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about, we're starting a music tech class at the at the junior high or high school level. Um, let's talk about some of those elements. So I think you've covered a lot of it about, you know, where would the focus be? So you're, you're getting the class started. What is your focus when you're starting this audio production class? Okay. Where would I start? Where would the focus be? So every situation's different and especially every budget, as we know from our like egregiously unconstitutional system of school funding in Ohio, every situation's different. So first thing I would say is plan out carefully whatever you can. I hear a lot from people looking to start music tech programs or wondering about it. It's like, oh man, it's so expensive. I'm like, it is, but it's not. If you had the choice to buy a tuba or several digital audio workstations for your classroom, right? Um, a tuba is like super expensive, even the cheap ones. And, a, and a, you could get a Mac mini for like $700 and a screen for like $100, and a MIDI keyboard for like $100, that, that's really, you can start right there with just that and be fine. So uh, you could probably buy like, I don't know, five or six workstations for the cost of one tuba. And then if you think about the tuba, okay, one kid is using that per year, just like right. one kid, versus six audio workstations. That's six kids per class. If you had like six or eight classes every day, and they rotated at the quarter or the semester, you're just reaching so many more students. You're getting more bang for your buck. If I were in charge, there would be plenty of money for all the tubas you want and all the digital audio workstations you want. <laughs> but, uh, but if you're looking at starting small, I recommend Mac minis because they already come with software. Like you don't even have to buy it. It comes with GarageBand. That's all you need to get started. The licensing issues, software licensing can be very complex um, and it can involve many school departments if you're not careful. If you buy a Mac mini and you get the like education, actually you can actually get the education bundle of apps for like another $200 and it includes Final Cut Pro so you can make movies. It includes Logic Pro so you can have like a big boy audio workstation. It includes a bunch of other tools. And then that lab or whatever you set up, it could be used for digital art could be used for music. It could be used for like a whole bunch of activities. Whereas again, the tuba can be used for root notes primarily. <laughs> um so do you have any advice or tips on, on recruiting students to your program? So let's say you you're finally setting up this class and you, you're going to offer it next year. Any tips on recruiting your students or do you think it's pretty much a, I mean, kind of like a self recruiting the, tool? Yeah. The main thing is you're going to have to limit the number of students. When you start offering just just offering the ability to make beats. My God, you're going to be inundated with students. I mean, it might take them like a quarter or a semester to find out about it. But as soon as one kid is playing his beat on the on his phone at the lunch table and the other kid's like, where did you do that? And he was like, I, in Mr. Bergio's lab, 
you know what I mean? Like every kid who is at that table is going to be coming to you wanting to, to join in. Yeah. Recruitment is like a non-issue for music technology. It's just not like people flock to it, like insanely in like insane amounts, you know? All right. Any, any advice you'd give for starting a program, things to, to think about or to consider as you're, as you're kind of putting it all together? Yeah. I mean, just think about having a dedicated space for it if possible. Think about the curriculum and the equipment sort of line up together. And look at what other people are doing. There are plenty of music tech programs around the country now that you can look to as a guide. If you happen to be in career technical education, which is what I'm in right now, you can feel free to look up Fort Hayes Audio Production. We have a bunch of social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and you can look that up. You can contact me if you're a teacher and you're out there and you're wanting to start music tech. Just contact me. You know, I'll throw out my email address. I'm at rvanbibber1 at gmail.com. And you can contact me and ask me. I consult with people all the time for starting music tech programs, but there are more and more programs starting all over the country at the K-12 level and at the higher ed level. We want to get something like that started. And I even say like myself, I know a little bit about it. Like I've, I've messed around with some, I don't know if we call them DAWs or DAWs. I don't know what the proper yeah, terminology is, but, um, uh, you know, I've messed around with a little bit of that stuff. I've done some audacity and a little bit of garage band, but if we're not comfortable with the audio production world, what can we do as a, as a teacher to kind of prepare ourselves to, to teach a class like this. So I had to face this because I actually got my job sort of by accident. I applied to be the band director at the school where I am. And like through the miracle of uh, God or whatever, I got this job instead. And I had to learn how to use Pro Tools and how to record and how to like set up a lab and everything like in one summer. I spent literally, I mean, this is my story. Not everyone has to do this. This might sound scary, but I spent like 10 hours a day, seven days a week, the entire summer learning all of this stuff from a lynda.com DVD and from this big thick book called Modern Recording Techniques. And it worked. <laughs> but again, that was me switching from full-time band to full-time music tech at the, you know, in one summer for a more modest approach where you may be like, picking up a class or two, you know, instead of, oh, instead of doing middle school general music, which is like the pits, at least the, <laughs> way, I, the way I did it, it was, <laughs> there's probably other people out there that are better at teaching it than me. Convert your general music classes to music technology classes. And if you want to learn stuff, just go to YouTube, like literally anything you want to know, someone's made a video on it. If you happen to want to learn how to use Pro Tools or Ableton Live, the Fort Hayes Audio Production YouTube channel, I just uploaded 150 videos this year due to remote teaching that cover a lot of topics. Any conceivable topic you need to know, there's a playlist for Pro Tools and there's a playlist for Ableton Live. I mean, there's just so many resources. Just start with a Google search and, and a YouTube search and just start watching videos. The other thing is um, you will be able to learn right along with your students. If you start this and your, stu and your students start together, just tell them, listen, we're trying something new. I don't know much more about this than you do. I'm still in charge, but let's learn this together. They love that. Like, that's what I had to do my first couple of years. I said, you know, I don't know the answer right away. I'll find it. And then as your students cycle through, your knowledge continues to build and they still come in as beginners, right? Because right. it's like a cycle. So the, the longer you do it, the smarter you look. And that's the best part. Once in a while, you'll have a student that comes in and they're like a super hot shot. You're just going to have to like not be intimidated by them, right? Your ego might take a hit that they know more than you, 
but those are really the students you want, you know, and then it's a matter of finding opportunities for those students to grow. But in general, the students are beginners when they come in. And so if you're a beginner for a year or two, it's not a big deal. Look on YouTube, look on the internet, all of the resources. I will also pitch the I Teach Music Technology Facebook page. If you're on Facebook and you go, you know, search for I Teach Music Technology, there's this really wonderful Facebook, it's a group actually, not a page. And there are so many gurus of music technology in the group and they will like answer you directly. You might have a question about like a lesson plan you saw in a book and the author of that book will respond in a comment. It's wild. <laughs> You know, as Facebook groups go, it's relatively small. It's like under 4,000 people. And so you can get a lot of questions answered. A lot of expertise is in that group. So I recommend that. Nice. So I know we've uh, covered some of this thought as we've gone through this podcast episode, but obviously technology is always changing. How can we as music educators stay on top of this or even ahead of the game? So with music tech, that's actually pretty difficult. I'm not going to lie. The technology changes so fast that it is hard to keep up. So my advice is to don't try to keep up because that's almost impossible. Instead, focus on one thing and getting good at one thing or two things. If you are going to try GarageBand, focus on getting really good at GarageBand. It doesn't matter what else is out there. That can be the tool that you use to teach. And then as you get more comfortable with it and you have some more headspace, maybe you want to learn something new. Maybe you want to check out uh, these cool little, this cool product from Isotope called Spire, which is like this sort of portable hard drive recording system thing. It's easy to use. It, it syncs with a smartphone app. Maybe you want to learn that. And so you learn that. It doesn't matter that, you know, version two came out and you're on version one. Um, It doesn't matter that there's like MIDI 2.0 or MIDI MPE out and you're just now learning what a MIDI controller is. Don't focus on how fast everything's moving or you'll just get, you know, lost. It's like climbing a, a mountain or a very, very tall ladder. Don't look down. Just keep doing what you're doing. You'll be fine. All right. Any other any other thoughts in the music tech audio production world and where we're going with all this? Well, um, I will also say that for teachers looking for support, time, technology, and music education is a resource. We are in the process. So I, I just got on the National Board for Time, and I've been active in the Ohio chapter for many years. Time National is revamping their website, and they are adding professional development uh, to the website. And so uh, there are going to be, in the very near future, time certifications that have been revamped, and also smaller, uh, short chunk PDs, like uh, like hour long PDs that you can take and get a certificate on a variety of topics. If you are in the audio side of things, I highly recommend joining the Audio Engineering Society. There's a wealth of resources in that organization. You can join a local affiliate if you are an audio engineer or an audio educator. And then, like I said, if you are a teacher out there and you have questions, I am very easy to get a hold of. My Facebook, you know, I'm like on the internet. Just contact me, reach out. I have very low standards for friends. And so (laughs) I'll probably accept it. You can just email me too, and I will strive to answer your questions. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for coming on Music and Cast today. And good luck with the rest of the school year and uh, helping us take our music students and students of all ages into the future. Well, Matt, thanks for having me. It was an honor to be on the podcast and, uh, you know, go Cats. All right. Thanks and have a great day. You too. All right, thank you listeners for tuning into this episode of Music and Casts. We look forward to you joining us again in future episodes as we explore topics relevant to the field of music education. 